You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today, I'm talking to Will Kurt, an AI engineer at Hex, as well as the author of both Count Basie, a blog about probabilities, as well as the book Get Programming with Haskell from Manning Publications. We start out talking about the book, then move on to Haskell in general, and end up comparing Haskell to R, as well as type systems and artificial intelligence. And now, comparing Haskell to R. All right, Will. So you are the author of Get Programming with Haskell. How did that end up happening? Okay, so uh, so Get Programming with Haskell was actually started as in sort of an interesting way. I actually didn't like plan on writing Get Programming with Haskell. Uh-huh. So like very long story, as short as I can make it, I actually was an English major undergrad, did library science for a while, was a librarian, and was really interested in programming and programming languages. So my first sort of passion in sort of computer science was programming languages. I loved learning Lisp. I loved learning Haskell. I loved experiencing new languages. But then actually long before Git Programming with Haskell was started, that started, I think the proposal came out in 2016, I want to say, or maybe 15. I'd already transitioned to doing data science and a lot of probability and stats. And I actually was more interested in statistics at the time than I was programming languages. But Manning had reached out to me, and I have a blog, Count Basie, that I've been working on, writing a lot of stats-related content. And Manning reached out to me and asked for a book review on a functional JavaScript book. I actually forget who the author was. I feel terrible about that because I, I remember I liked it. And this is good. It, was, it was a proposal review. It wasn't for the book. It was for the proposal. And of course, they said, you know what, do you want to write any books and do you do any writing? And so I said, interestingly enough, I ended up publishing a stats book with a different publisher. I proposed that book to them then. They didn't want that. Mm-hmm. And uh, Michael Stevens at Manning will hear that and be mad. <laughs> but um i don't forget to work with him he was he's great anyway so they had me do the review and i mentioned my writing and then they came back to me in the fall actually i wish i had the year right i want to say 2016 they came back to me in the fall and said hey do you want to write a haskell book and my first thought was no (laughs) (laughs) wow yeah because i was like i haven't been, you know, my thing I'm worried about is stats and I haven't been, and actually, so now I tell the story too, because it's interesting. What got me into machine learning was actually Haskell was sort of the last thing I was really trying to tackle before I got into machine learning, because I really liked Haskell. And then I started getting into machine learning and I was like, wow, you know, Haskell's neat and it's cool, but it's very hard to write programs in it and just build stuff to hack around. And then there's going to be some people that say you're wrong, but that's how I felt. Uh And then I would go do some linear algebra in R and like have a product like you do two lines of matrix calculations and you can make this predictive model and you're like whoa all this really cool programming language theory and i'm having a hard time building a web app and like here's two lines of r and i can predict the future and so that wow. seems more engaging to me the code's messier it's not beautiful r is a neat language it's a whole separate topic we get into so i still am a programming language nerd but at the time i was kind of not in that headspace but then i thought about it And I thought, you know, I didn't feel like I was done with Haskell. I had taught a course. I was living in Nevada at the time in Reno. And I taught a course, uh, a section of a course at at the university there on it. And I didn't quite feel like I had kind of grasped Haskell. I didn't feel like I was done with it in a way that satisfied me. And then I also... Unfinished business. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Unfinished business, exactly. And and I felt like, you know, I kind of do have an itch I want to scratch. I really do want to, like, get Haskell. And there are many great Haskell books out there. But I didn't think the Haskell book I wanted to read was there, which is the book that doesn't love Haskell, right? That doesn't approach Haskell as the greatest language ever created. And if you don't get it, you're stupid, which I think is a sort of, <laughs> there is that part of that community, right? And uh, you can definitely find people who have that attitude, certainly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm, I'm a very beginner friendly person, I think. I hope I, my writing, I, I try to engage people. And I want people to be excited and curious by ideas. So with that, when I started thinking about this opportunity for a proposal, and I do like writing, and I thought I like writing, and I thought, yes, yeah, so the book I want doesn't exist yet. And it's a book that really loves Haskell, but also really knows it's annoying and it can be frustrating. And also, I really wanted a book that you could finish and you could either go to the type classopedia and finally read some of those articles, or you could just build something on the weekend. You could build a little, you know, API endpoint, or you could take data from something and build real projects and really go. That was one problem I had is I would do all these tutorials and and think I got an idea. And then when I was like, let me build a little web server, I'd be like, oh, I don't know how to do that. And it takes time. So I I was like, yeah, I'll do it. And I wrote the book proposal. I didn't realize that if anyone out there, you know, (laughs) listening to this thinks about writing a book, either they want you to write the book, they don't 
you still have to write the book proposal. You still have to sell it to them. So it's kind of a trick. <laughs> um, and I, I wrote a proposal. They really liked it. And I was, I was really excited and, uh, and also terrified because I, you know, I was not an expert in Haskell, which I think is a good position to start writing a book. But that was really the, the start of that. That was sort of the start of that journey. And I was terrified. Uh, but it, was, it was very exciting. Wow. Okay. So I, you said we should come back to R and I want to come back to it immediately because I have to admit, I have not heard of anyone say, first I learned Haskell and then I learned R or I, I picked up R and wow, did R blow my mind yeah. <laughs> in terms of like, you know, usually it's the other way around. Somebody will say something like, oh, I was using a language like R or Python or something like that. Although obviously R and Python are different. And then Haskell blew my mind. So talk to me about that. What was it about R that you found so compelling, even with this sort of Haskell background? Yeah, so I, and even today, I still find R. I mostly write Python. I don't write R as much as I used to, but I still have a, a secret love for R. So right off the bat, it's important that people recognize that R, R is often, I think it's because it's used by stats people who are non-programmers. There's this kind of belief that, okay, if people that aren't programmers are using it, then it should be easy. So I'm a software engineer. I'm going to get R, and it's just going to make sense, and it's going to be stupid and easy, and I got it. And then they go to R, nothing works. The code's weird. <laughs> and they're like, what is this nightmare? This is bad. And it's an understandable reaction if you're prior coming in is that this should be so stupid and easy. But R has a rich history. R is based on S, which is goes back to, I think, 1975, I want to say. It's one of the older languages. Because of that, if you come from a Lisp background, for example, like the, the way there's three different, at least there's four different, some R expert will correct me on this, but there's at least four different object systems, I think. I don't know, it's the S3 and the S4 objects. There's multiple object systems in R. And there are it's some Perl vibes already. Yeah, exactly. But, but that's because it's so old. And, and actually, one of the, so yeah. the default system is actually based on like the common list object system type of generic functions, right? Where you actually, rather than thinking about an object with a method, you think of a function that dispatches based on the data you send to it. So if you mm -hmm. aren't familiar with that, you see R, R's plot works that way. So whatever the type of the object is that plot function gets, it then dispatches the appropriate plotting based on that thing, right? It's very cool. And if you come from a common list background, you're going to go, oh, this is very familiar pattern of object orientation that has been forgotten to time. And so there's a lot of that in the language. And yes, it does have the Perl effect of like a lot of stuff built over time. But a lot of that is really fascinating. And there's a list hidden in there. And I think everyone who fell in love with JavaScript at one point has that same experience of like when you find a list hidden in something, you love the language. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing about R, which I think everyone should learn it correctly, um, R looks like it's like Python, like you mentioned, but it's actually uh, entirely vector-based, which is a very different way about thinking about programming. So every single value in R is, and again, there's probably some technical exception to this, is a vector. You type in one, it looks like a scalar one is actually a vector of one element, uh, much like when you're working with NumPy in Python, but it's the whole core of the language. R will let you write code that feels like Python and performs badly and you feel frustrated, when you write R the way it's supposed to be, it performs quite well and becomes very elegant. You can write a lot of linear algebra in a way that looks like a formula in a textbook, and it just runs. And it's sort of beautiful when you get in that. And like Haskell, it requires a real tweak in your worldview about how programs should be written and how you should think about code. And it is a beautiful thing. And it's got a great ecosystem. And it also, one more thing about R I'd say, which I think is a point of confusion, is um, when you use like the REPL or an interpreter in most other languages, you think of this as a tool to help me write programs. A better way to understand R is it inverts that relationship. It's for statisticians. It's for people doing numeric computing. You write code in libraries to aid you in the REPL, right? Like your interactive environment, that's where R happens. And if you're writing extra code, it's to enable that to be a better experience rather than I'm debugging that. So when I hit run, this code just runs. You're really building interactive environments. So all of that leads to some interesting stuff. And so R is a, it's an old language. It has some quirks for sure. But if you're open to it and you really look at the history of where these things come from, R can be, and people will probably really get mad at me for this, but it can be as enlightening as Haskell can. If you approach it not as some amateur stats language that doesn't really have anything to offer me, if you open to it as a teaching thing, you actually can get a lot from R and end up being surprisingly infatuated with the language. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I that makes a lot of sense, especially coming from somebody who writes a blog on Bayesian statistics. <laughs> yeah. I mean, clearly, like you're the target audience for R uh, as, as someone who's like really all about the stats. And whereas, like you said, the average software engineer, like me personally, I don't really have a stats background. I have never used R, and it's it's probably not something I 
can imagine myself reaching for. I mean, maybe, who knows? <laughs> never say never. But that's really interesting to know because like to me thinking, oh, I can take something that looks like, you know, it came straight out of a linear algebra textbook and put it into the REPL and it just works. And that's not a selling point for me because yeah. I'm like, I've never read a linear algebra textbook. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> um, but it's straightforward for me to understand how a lot of people could really appreciate that. So I wonder if you've used Python because I know that's kind of the other big stats ecosystem that people talk about a lot. Yes. And like, have you? And if so, how do they compare? Yeah, so Python was the first language I learned and it is the language I use the most now. So for a while, I did most of my stats stuff in R. And it was kind of weird, actually, because I had a pretty good Python background, but not a good Python stats background. Like, I didn't know how to use a lot of the statistical libraries that well. And so eventually, I transitioned. I was going to write a third book. I ended up canceling it because of just, like, life. Uh, that was going to be involved using Jax. And another topic I would love to get into if we get a chance is differentiable programming, which ties into all these other things. But And so I do use Python. I mean, Python has NumPy, which gives you this vector-based feeling of what R is, and and in many ways can solve most of those practical, I want linear algebra to just run, and you can reproduce that. And of course, Python, and I felt this even when I was the biggest R advocate, when you're doing data science work or statistics work, if the end result is a document or a report, use R. If the end result is something that's going to go to production, use Python. It's a lot easier to make Python. People do it, and I've done it. I've been at companies where we've shipped products that call R under the hood, but in my opinion, it's just not great for that. But it is really good for, I want to make a report. I'm going to build this report, and it's going to spit out some results, and it's going to look very beautiful. I mean, ggplot2 is still the best graphing library. It makes the most beautiful things. I actually fall in love with matplotlib in Python because you can make, you can do whatever you want, right? It's got that, like, you know, it's an engineering tool. You can make anything you have in your head you can make with matplotlib. The convention over configuration or inverted, right? But yeah, I love Python. I've always liked it. It has its warts, right? But it is just, uh, in, the, in the Haskell book, I use an example code where you can write the same code. It's reversing a list and then reversing it again and returning it. And it's valid JavaScript, Ruby, and Python. And it gives different answers for each three languages. And I think <laughs> Python's is the weirdest because it returns nothing if you do the default reverse because it's in state, it's an in-place one. And if you do reversed, it will return the thing, which is confusing, right? You have to oh, know, yeah. leaky abstraction, right? You have to know what Python's doing under the hood to know how it's going to behave, which is not a great property. Right. I feel conflicted about types being added to Python because I do like programming languages and I do believe dynamic programming languages is a design choice. It's not a limitation. But all that said, the libraries are great. The language has got a lot of great features and it keeps getting better in my opinion. And it's just a lot of fun and you can still just solve problems quickly in Python. So I'm a huge Python fan. I don't really have any languages I think I hate, unfortunately. I can't really complain about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so that, that makes me further curious because you mentioned if you want to ship something to production, use Python over R. I'm kind of curious how you feel about how Haskell fits into that mix. Because certainly, I mean, with, especially with the type checker and everything like that, if I'm thinking about shipping something to production, I would think that Haskell would make it a lot more reliable and also run faster than if I were doing it in Python. But then again, I assume the, again, not being a statistician, I assume the Haskell ecosystem around stats is nowhere near the size of Python's, let alone ours. So let's pretend that somehow Haskell had the same ecosystem. I'm curious, just on a language level, what would you think about, like, if, if you could just assume that you had all the libraries that you wanted off the shelf in Haskell, just like you did in Python, would you still think of Python for shipping stuff to production, even over Haskell or just over R? No, I agree with you. And I guess it depends on how production you are, right? Like in the data science world, you're kind of sort of limiting that time gap between sort of like what a data scientist can do and what an engineer can do. And in the best teams, you kind of have that gap eliminated, which means Python is kind of a good universal thing. But if, if you're making really high performance machine learning platforms, it totally makes sense to use a strongly typed language. And if Haskell had the support, Haskell would be a great one for that. Obviously, tons of quantitative Finance firms use Haskell or, or similar languages, right? And it does make sense there. So I think that is the big picture that is a better choice in those cases if you have the library support. And I think, you know, working in strongly typed languages for things where you, and this is where I think the key point, for things where you know how the system's going to behave, types help because you just are describing a bunch of type transformations and that is your system. But with data science, this is where it's interesting is a lot of your work is actually figuring out how a system is supposed to behave. And this is actually where I'm a huge dynamic programming is a feature, not a bug of a language. In the early stages of building things, having that kind of flexibility to not have to think about what it, because you don't always know. You don't always know when you're reading data, what types are these, right? Are these strings? Are these addresses? Are these 
street names? Like, what is the type? I don't know when I start out a problem. Are these floats? Are these integers? Are these going to be, how do I want to represent these numeric things? I don't know right away, right? Like I maybe want to read them in as floats and see if they make sense as integers. Maybe they actually categories, right? Maybe these one here represents category one. And in the data science process and the sort of machine learning process, a lot of that is stuff you're kind of figuring out. And that's sort of a huge part of the building process is kind of iterating on what does this mean? And that's actually where I think a strong type system can be a bit of a blocker because you don't know what your system looks like and what you're trying to figure out is that definition. Once you have that, you know, if you have a mature company and you're shipping machine learning products that are really products, you know, if you're Google, right, or someone like that, it totally makes sense to pick the stronger type line because you have the system well-defined, you know what it's going to be, and you have the resources to build that out and have it be as performant as it can be. But for a lot of other problems, the tooling around Python is I mean, I don't want to say it's better than R, but it's better situated for shipping than R is. And it's good enough for a lot of cases, because mostly you're just dealing with numbers in, at the end of the day. And there is like the issue of shapes, but that comes up sort of in the software, you know, it's sort of like uh, dependent typing, right? Where you actually know the properties of the types. Uh, that is an interesting space I'd love to see explored, but it's kind of is a pain point. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with what I'm talking about, a lot of these machine learning things, you're dealing with matrices of multiple dimensions and different shapes, basically, is what they're usually referred to as, where you might have, you know, 2,000 rows, uh, 10 features, then you have three different channels for those, right? So you have this 10,000 by, what did I say, 10 by 3, and then you might do a transformation of that where you flatten it out, and keeping track of that could be a real headache. And the libraries themselves will catch those bugs, you know, before you can even build the trading pipeline. Like, it will be a runtime error, but you're building a training pipeline. So runtime error then is not as big a deal as it is in a user serving thing. So I can see a space for that. So yeah, very long winded answer to say, ideally, I think it's great. Um, I think in practice, it makes sense. It's, it, there's enough there without without strong types. So I'm actually curious to go back to something you said earlier, because so you mentioned, like, let's say you've got some data that's coming in, you don't know, is this supposed to be a float? Is this supposed to be a, you know, a string or whatever? So I'm curious, because this is something I've heard people say about dynamic types and how they help with that. But I, I think I, I have to, I always feel like I'm missing something about like what specifically is helpful about dynamic typing in that scenario. So let's say the data comes in, I don't know, it's like CSV, JSON, like yeah, what, yeah. what's or more? It could, be, it could be parquet files, it could be raw from a database, could be just a text document. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, it could be any of those, yeah. Right, so let's say it's JSON and we got data of some sort of, I don't know, government voting records or something like that. And I've got a bunch of rows coming in and each of them has some sort of shape. I don't really know what it is yet. So I pull this thing in. It starts off as a string because it's like just a JSON string. And then let's say I'm in, I'll use JavaScript because that's the one I'm most familiar with as among dynamic languages. And I say json.parse and it gives me back an object. And so I have this object, but I don't know what its types are. What I imagine myself doing next in JavaScript, if I don't know what those types are, is one of two things. One is I might just take a guess and say, well, I kind of assume this field is this. And so I'm going to just proceed with my program, making assumptions about that, uh, quite possibly after putting like a type of check to see if it actually was that after the json.parse. And then the other thing that I might do is I might sort of pull it up in a REPL and just say like, hey, what did this actually, you know, decode as and like print it out. And then I can just see what the actual data was and then basically go to step one where I'm like, okay, now I'm going to make an assumption based on that. So in either case, I end up making an assumption about what the shape of the data is, possibly informed, possibly just kind of shot in the dark. And maybe some of the time that will work out and it'll be what it actually was consistently in the data. But maybe sometimes uh, it'll turn out to be wrong because in some cases this field was a string instead of a number or something like that. And I'm unpleasantly surprised in this you know corner case of my program. And then whenever that happens, that to me is where I feel I, I've gotten bitten because that mistake in sort of that assumption about the schema just sort of w was allowed to snake through my program and maybe where it comes up is actually quite distant from the original JSON. And now I have to go and manually trace back like, how the hell was this thing a string all the way over here? Oh, and then like after a bunch of debugging, I'm like, okay, it's because the JSON came from there. Whereas in contrast, in like a, you know, I'll, I'll say Elm, for example, there's a way that I have to sort of state my assumptions up front. I have to say, when I'm decoding the JSON, I expect this, 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 and this. And on the one hand, that's an extra step. But on the other hand, I don't know, is it really like compared to what I was like doing in the JavaScript world? So I don't think it's the extra step. I think it's actually the commitment to the type that is a sort of different in the thinking. When you're doing okay. data science, you know, well, first of all, in the end, you always end up with the same thing, which is a giant matrix of numbers, right? That's usually where you're going to end up 
at, at some point. But oftentimes, if I'm trying a new problem, you know, you're trying to build a model of the problem as well. That's sort of like going in parallel, which it does. And I think types do kind of make sense, but you want to iterate on what that is. So you may have a whole bunch of columns of data. Some of them may be missing values, which is a pretty interesting how those that's solved in data science libraries typically, because like a lot of them will have functions that, you know, it's not like Haskell's maybe or anything, but they'll either behave ignoring NAs because NAs are super common. Missing values, like this is actually a great example case, right? So missing values in in data science that itself is a very complicated problem what that means right so like even simply wrapping that in some kind of like maybe a style type where you kind of encapsulate this is missing in a, in a regular software engineering problem a value that's missing represents something kind of maybe fundamentally wrong with the process an error that you need to handle later maybe it could be a missing field but in data science like okay if you have a missing value the question you first have to answer and this is something you have to actually think about your data right is like okay so is this missing at random? Is this missing not at random? Is this um, meaningful? And then I still need to stick this, it still needs to become a number at some point, right? So there's a lot of ways to handle it. Do I fill it in with a number that doesn't exist in the regular columns? Do I fill it in with the average of that column for the non-missing things? There's all kinds of techniques to handle that. Do I add an extra column saying it's missing and do one of those things? And you need to change these strategies a lot in the early stages. And I think that's where the types come in. It's not that it's not that it's more work. It's that you are so rapidly iterating between your representation that there's not a lot of benefit for kind of locking that in. And things like missing values, you actually assume they're there when you're doing data science work. Like you know your data is going to have a lot of missing values. And one of the first parts of the process is how am I going to handle these? But to my earlier point, you may start with this huge amount of data and just say, I just want to see if one column that's a bunch of integers if that works well for this problem. I'm trying to predict some outcome. Let me just, before I even worry about cleaning up this other stuff, let me just see how well it does if I take weight to try to predict height. And you'll build a model off that, and that model will behave a certain way, and you go, okay, let me go back to this. Okay, I've got zip codes. How do I want to think about zip codes, right? How do I want to represent them mathematically? And I think you're not wrong to say, like, you could use types for all these things. I think it's there. I just think that it adds an extra sort of cognitive step that, you know, if you got zip codes, right? You guys, so you got zip codes, you could think of them as string. You could think of them as like, okay, how am I going to represent this so that it makes sense mathematically? You know, you could map it to a Latin long point and say, that's what this is. As I'm talking to you, I'm trying to think through this sort of nature that part of the work is always mapping things to numbers, which on the one hand seems very amenable to types. But I think how you want to do that mapping changes rapidly, which is where I think you get a little friction with types. And you want to be able to change that mapping strategy very quickly, which if it is a long series of complicated steps, you may want to totally change how the types work if you're thinking purely in types in that case. And so that's where I'm kind of feeling that this is the case. Again, I don't think that there's no justification for types in this environment. I don't think it's like you can't use types, it's a sin. I just think that's why it tends not to be as popular. Yeah, that's really interesting. So an observation about that. So it sounds like let's talk about the changing representations a lot part. So I wonder about, let's say I'm using Python and I introduce type checking to Python. And I don't know if this is the case. I'm going to assume that there aren't, but let's pretend that somehow it exists. A Python type checker that has 100% type inference, never gets it wrong, always is correct, you know, like elves. Like basically it's just somehow that miraculously exists for Python. And I choose to activate that, but I don't add any type annotations. I just take my exact same Python program and now I basically just have an extra type checker that can tell me if my types are inconsistent in various places or not. And then I can still change the representations. I don't have to change any type annotations. So I can essentially make the same changes that I was making in the no type checking world. But now I have the type checker telling me if any of the changes that I made cause something that's like a scenario where it's like, this is definitely going to be a mismatch. So if this code path gets run, there's definitely going to be a crash. I wonder is in that (laughs) weird concocted scenario, what does that do? Like, does that become a hindrance? No, and I actually think to an extent that that makes sense, it does exist in the, so for example, like a common pattern is you have like categorical text values. And actually R does have minimal typing. I mean, it does assign values to these objects. It'll try to infer whether dates, for example, Date types are hugely important because dates have all kinds of properties you want to be able to do with dates, right? So taking a string and converting it into a date does exist. So I think to be fair to the act, like the practice of data science, it's not completely devoid of types. 
So the example I was going to give is like a one hot encoding, right? You take a label and you want to map it to a grid of numbers where it's just a one if it is that label and a zero otherwise. So there is, you know, when you set up, uh, but whether it's an R or Python, they have slightly different idioms. You start getting your data in some kind of matrix and you do specify what types columns are to an extent, right? So like you do say like this string is a date or in R in particular, you can specify whether a string is a string or a factor. And a factor means that like if one of the labels is summer, right? If you've got summer, winter, fall strings, you say this is a factor, then it'll just be one. It'll be the same value. When you do certain transformations of that, so there is light typing happening in these tools in the sense that I think data scientists are like comfortable with it. And again, and again, it comes with missing values. Like It's hard to think of the exact cases, but there are, when it matters whether or not you have missing values, you will get errors in these things, right? Yeah. For example, there's a lot of tools that allow you to take the mean of a column and by default, it will exclude missing values because they know you just want to get that mean. You don't want to have mm-hmm. to always write conditional like if then. But at the same time, they're, like if you try to do linear regression with NAs, you will throw in a value when you run it. And I guess that gets to the other thing. You know, uh, in these sort of notebook environments, you're not really compiling and going through that loop, right? Like you're not building sure. out a program. And I think that also touches on a similar vein of this sort of thing is you really are. It's a really deep interpreter. And I know you can still use types in that environment, but there is no compilation stage in that. And this could be months of work you're doing in data science where it never feels like you're compiling a program um, uh-huh. or even building a program, right? And I actually, I think that's a whole other topic, but that's sort of an area of weakness in data science is it's actually tricky to go from notebooks to programs. And I think that that is part of it. So yeah, it's a very interesting question and really valid points, I think. And I don't, you know, I don't want to pass off anything I'm saying as sort of like dogma or a fact, like this is how it is. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. No, I, I just think it's very interesting because I sort of came at some of these questions from examining my own like feelings about types and like how they've changed as I've gotten more exposure to different type systems. And I kind of went from like, oh, well, static typing is normal to like, oh, dynamic typing is just how this language works. And then I became aware of this, like, oh, there's a fight between these two groups. And then eventually I now I'm kind of at a point where I'm trying to just figure out what are the individual interactions that happen like with me as a programmer and how much of them are part of this binary. And I I tend to think that a lot of them are very easily categorized based on feeling. But then if I look at them and try to break it down to really specific parts, it turns out that it's not something that's actually innate. And there are ways to potentially get that in other ways. Until you said it, I'd never really thought about it this way. But the changing representation thing really kind of seems like the thing that makes changing representations take longer is not type checking, but type annotations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Because you have to go through and update them whenever you change your representation. But if you have type inference and you choose not to annotate, which, I mean, I always choose to annotate, (laughs) I have to admit that does make changing the representation take longer. Now, granted, I could theoretically have some sort of editor support that where I could press a button and say like, you know, oh, just change this type and all the annotations. I don't know of any editors that do that today. But it's interesting to think about all these different use cases. And so I always like talking to people about specifics because that's something I'd never thought of before was the changing representations a lot situation. Yeah. And I think about like where I think dynamic typing is the best is like in lists, right? In scheme. That is a great example in SIGP, structure interpretation of computer programs, where they make this really interesting sort of like little quick dispatching system. Doesn't it solves a neat problem, but when you look at the code, you realize you couldn't write it in a way that involves types. Like it's inherently dynamic in its nature. And I think to my point I made earlier, I think that's sort of one of the common, I've actually been, most of your listeners probably have been in the industry a while too. I remember when Python was first getting big and all the Java people were like, you can't write programs without types. You guys are crazy. This will never take off. It'll never be (laughs) successful. And I also saw the other end of this, which was great because I I saw a while when Ruby was popular and a lot of developers were like, types are gross. It's a waste of my time. It makes programming (laughs) awful. And then I saw that, you know, the type inference come from Haskell and Leakin, the things like Elm and other languages where a lot of web developers started saying, wait a second, no, types make my life easier. So I've seen this come and go. I think sort of the common error in thinking is to not appreciate it as a design choice and abuse it as a design choice, right? Like in Haskell, you should think in types. You should write out your type signatures before you start. To your point about uh, inference, I feel like in Haskell that the type signatures, uh, inference is there when you're like, crap, how does this work? <laughs> you know, like, how am I going to transform this to this to this? It's like a lot of uh, inference solving for me. But for the most part, the type signatures are a guide. That's how you design your program, right? My program is a series. I need to go from raw text to a matrix. Okay. Yeah. Raw text to what to a matrix? Okay, here. And that's where when you're building that kind of pipeline, you know, types are beautiful. And the annotations almost write the code, right? And in Haskell, when you start annotating these types, you go, oh, there's, there's my program. 
okay, those are all the functions. They're all yeah. a series of transformations. And outside, I get my pro- I get my results. So when I think about Scheme, when you see people writing Scheme or Lisp, and they're writing really interesting programs, and again, I know there's typed racket, and again, just, you know, none of these things are set in stone, but you see a sort of playfulness you can have when you can do that. And so I kind of, that's always, always my sort of belief is like, you know, really embrace the fact that in Python, a function can return different types if you want, and you don't have to think about that. That, that can be bad. That can lead to awful programming, too. I, I totally recognize <laughs> there's time for that. It's a terrible design decision, right? But it can also be cool, and you should embrace that when the languages that have it. And then if you don't want that behavior, choose a language like, like Elm, or you don't have to be stuck with that. If you want a typed language, pick a typed language. Because Python has type annotations, and it's, and it's it's not enforced, but you can annotate it, and you can have some level of type checking. And I, I say, like I said before, I feel somewhat complicated. Sometimes it does make functions easier to reason about. But at the same time, I feel like, well, if you really want types, maybe pick a language that has them. You know, <laughs> like that's, there's, there's plenty of good languages with strong type systems. Yeah, there, there's definitely a weird element of... Like when I think about, you know, Python's getting a type checker and Ruby's getting a type checker and Go's getting generics, and it feels a little bit like some fundamental character of the language is changing. Yeah. And it's like Ruby with optional types just feels like it, not just because of, you know, what the type checker does. And in some cases, that could be a good thing in the sense of like, hey, now you can write Ruby programs that you feel more comfortable changing and things like that. But of course, it's going to influence how you write Ruby. Of oh, yeah. course, it's going to influence how you write Python. And Ruby's a great example because Ruby, I mean, I used to be a Ruby developer for a while, and it's the best and worst part of Ruby is this metaprogramming, right? You can do all kinds uh-huh. of totally wacky stuff, right. which it's the best and the worst, right? Like what makes Rails so powerful initially when it was first, I mean, if people around when it first came out, I was there and it was just like this mind-blowing thing. You could just, all it just happened, right? ORM just worked. And you're like, how? And then you had to read metaprogramming with Ruby to go, oh, okay, this is, and then when you realize what's happening, you go, maybe I don't want this in my life. Maybe I <laughs> <laughs> I want to be writing these things on the fly that I can't debug. And, you know, it's a blessing and a curse, right? Like it leads to powerful programming tools, but also a lot of like foot guns, right? <laughs> so. Sure. Yeah, I also appreciate a big word that's been on my mind lately with regards to programming languages and how to think about them is workflows. And what I mean by that is just like just the different activities that you're doing in programming. Like to me, it's a different workflow if I'm writing a quick prototype versus if I'm trying to write something really hardened for production. And it's also a different workflow if I'm trying to make a revision to an existing code base, which in turn is different depending on, it's a different workflow for me, depending on whether I wrote the code recently or I wrote the code a while ago or somebody else wrote the code. And then again, whether or not I I know that person. And all of those things make certain aspects of a programming language more or less valuable. And in some cases, they could go from being valuable to being a hindrance, depending on what I'm doing. It's a great thing to bring up that workflows, because one of the things I've noticed with data science, a lot of teams I've joined, the question comes up, like, do you use Jira tickets for data science? Mm. And the point I make is that oftentimes in early data science work, behaviors that are terrible in regular software engineering, like scope changes, changing like growth of the problem, shifting your focus, those are awful in real engineering and in software engineering, but in data science, those often lead to better products. You're going, wait, this doesn't work, but what if we change this? So, hmm. you know, to your point about workflows, like that, that is something that's very different about the pure data science workflow versus the engineering workflow. And they're not, they can't be the same because like I said, the, some of the best data science work I've seen comes out of going, wait a second, what if we change this problem up? Like totally things that would be awful. If you had an engineering ticket that looked like that, you'd be like, you just changed the entire purpose of this ticket. How could you do that to me? You, you know, sometimes it's good to spend a week tweaking a model and going someplace different. And that's actually changes the whole product roadmap. Uh, whereas in engineering, tickets are healthy and they're good to say, hey, you need to fix this text and it needs to do this and don't do more. If you need to do right. more, talk to PM because we got to rethink this project, right? And so that also makes me think of the, another example that you gave about some things which are maybe not best practice normally, but situationally might actually be the best choice, like having a function return multiple different types. Like, yeah, in, in a lot of languages, like in Haskell, for example, if you want the function to return multiple types, then you need to go and change it to be an algebraic data type, and then you need to go and change all the call sites so that they are handling that return type appropriately, uh, depending on the different scenarios. But if you're just only going to use that function in the next five minutes in your interactive, you know, <laughs> uh, REPL or notebook or whatever the case may be, you're like, I don't want to change the call sites. I don't care. I just want to like, I'm just, I'm, I just want to try out this thing. And I just want to return another type because that's the quickest way to let me try this thing out and get my answer and then throw it away and never touch it again. 
that's a really interesting example. And I, I wonder if somebody was trying to design a language, trying to preserve that while also letting you seamlessly opt in. I think opt into like, you know, type checking. I think often there's a little bit of a tension there, but maybe not as much as people think around ideas like allowing the workflow of like, I want to just do a quick and dirty thing and just ignore all the errors and also wanting to have fast feedback loops and reliability and so on and so forth. I think that's what you're describing is it's like, can we have everything? It's actually the, the team I just joined. I mentioned this is not an ad for Hex, but I joined this team at, at Hex in large part because they're building better notebooks and they're solving a lot of these problems. And the team I'm specifically joining is about using sort of AI to make the user experience much better, to make code better. And one of the things I've already chatted with is like right now, it's very hard to reuse functions in notebooks. If, if you end up working in a notebook environment for a while, even as someone who has a strong engineering background like myself, it becomes very annoying to make reusable code. And that's a bad thing. Like the freedom you get from the notebook is worth it, right? But whenever I start moving towards production, the workflow is this. I keep cleaning up my classes in notebooks. I copy and paste them to other notebooks when I need to tweak them a little bit. I then make a temporary package that I import into the notebook for a little bit. And then I eventually move everything to PyCharm and actually write software. And it's just a mess because when you move everything to PyCharm, then you've lost all the fun stuff you were able to do, which you do want when you're developing these libraries. But if you're in the notebook environment, you just can't. And, you know, so part of the thing with the sort of, I think there's this ways we're going with these sort of smarter and with AI tools isn't just this like prompt engineering stuff. It's being able to do really sophisticated stuff under the hood, right? Like being able to say, hey, I wrote this Python code. Can you transpile that into Rust, <laughs> right? And maybe, you know, obviously transpiling doesn't require AI, right? But can you make that really good, Rust? Or even like for regular data scientists that aren't comfortable with, a lot of data scientists I've known aren't comfortable with building Python packages, which just means really bad cross-team code reuse. You know, what if behind the scenes you grab that code, you start building on a package intelligently behind the scenes. You see repeated patterns and you say, let's pull this out. And then now you have a package. And to your point, you know, what if when I'm done playing in Python and I kind of have a prototype, there's some smart ways to start saying, hey, let's start building this out into some, you know, into Haskell, right? Let's start building this out in this lane that has a stronger type system, or let's see if we can do something a little smarter than we can do with just transpilations at the <laughs> phrase, right? A little bit different than just compiling <laughs> to a different source language. Maybe we can be more clever and we can start having our cake and eating it too. I'm a big believer in trying to have your cake and eat it too if you can. Cake's delicious. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think I think to your point, I think that's sort of, you know, that's one of the one of the dreams. I, I keep mentioning SickPeak because I love that book. But one of the things it talks about is uh, in the interpreter section how, you know, the, the great revelation, I wish I could pull it out and read it, but basically that the biggest insight in software is to realize that the interpreter is just another program. And so you should be writing languages as suit your problem. We're seeing a lot of improvement, I think, in that space. There's so many great languages today. I think the programming language space is better than it was 20 years ago. But like that dream of like, no, no, we should be making languages for everything for its purpose and changing that language as we want, right? I think we may be able to get someplace with these more powerful AI tools where that can actually be more of a thing, where we can have all this stuff happening. And I think that's a very cool possibility that I've been thinking about a lot recently. That would be cool. Going back to the R example that you gave earlier, it's hard to imagine, but maybe it is possible to have a language where you can get that this looks like it came straight out of a linear algebra textbook and yet also get the same, like, here's the same level of robustness you get in production from a Haskell or Haskell-like language. Yeah. Can you get both of those in the same language? I mean, possibly if you design it just for the linear algebra plus the, you know, runtime robustness. But I guess maybe a, a better question is, can you make something where it can be used for that R use case and have that same experience and also for another different domain-specific use case. I don't know. That's a tricky, uh, <laughs> yeah, <and laughs> a tricky question. Yeah, you think about these large language models, right? These transformers are, the general form is giant translation machines, right? Like you have two different sequences. So you know, that is, the, I think, the classic reason why people don't just write programming languages for every problem they have is, well, it used to take a long time to write programming languages. I think we've made a lot of progress there. But rewriting code is still a pain, right? Like you don't want to write a project in Python and then transport that to, you know, even leaving Braze this week, but it Braze is a lot of Ruby. Yet all the data science is Python. And, and even that, very similar languages, but they don't have the same numeric library support. It's just hard to get things switched from one language to the other. But, you know, we are entering kind of an exciting age where I think it's possible to start imagining, okay, like, yeah, this R program is done. I'm happy with where it is, but I don't know how to translate it to Haskell or something that has a strong time right. system. 
I'm ready to give up this language. You bring it to the next one, which I said, you know, rather than trying to cram it all in one language, like yeah, each language should express ideas the way it does. It should have its quirks and its benefits. And it's good. We should have a plurality of languages and being able to, you know, map from one to the other and teleport to these spaces. That's sort of the magic, right? That's the real, like that. We aren't even really thinking about that right now, but I think that's, an exciting possibility, right? That ends language wars <laughs> because you just go where you need to go. Yeah, it's definitely an exciting possibility. Here's some interesting things to think about in regards to that. So one is, let's say we get to that future. A wild thing to imagine is that the worldwide popularity of languages, of a particular language, could change very dramatically quicker than it does today. Like you could have a language that's on top today and then tomorrow nobody's using it because everyone is like, oh, this new thing came out that I like a little bit better. I'll just switch all my code over to that overnight. But then you think about what are the mechanics of actually doing that? And I think an interesting conclusion that comes out of that is that end-to-end tests become more valuable. Because if I'm porting all my code over from one language to another in an automated way, I'm also using that same automated tool to port my tests over, at which point I don't actually know if my tests are testing what the original tests tested. But if I have exactly the same tests, like end-to-end tests, then I can actually have some confidence there because that's the same test. Now, having said that, there's another interesting consideration there, which is, Let's say that I'm going from like a Python to a Haskell, for example. Let's also assume that somehow the new code has been as faithfully as possible translated. There's a couple of things there that have to be, to some extent, lost in translation. One is the idioms are different. So the code is going to read differently and kind of feel differently and might be easier or harder to understand for the specific humans who are working on that code base from then on. Another consideration is that there might be edge cases that come up just because the runtimes are a little different. Like a really good example that comes up. So um, I, I recently started this new job at this company vendor, VENDR. And basically, what we're doing is we're starting to use Rock, the language I originally created, and now quite a few people are working on, on the back end. And because we're introducing it incrementally to an existing TypeScript running on Node backend, one of the things that comes up is converting between the types of you know Node.js runtime representation to Rock runtime representations. And guess what? JavaScript is unique among basically every programming language in that their number type for integers and floats is 64-bit floating point, Uh, whereas Rock does not do that, because why would you unless you're JavaScript? (laughs) (laughs) Or specifically, you know, designed to work well with JavaScript, which Rock is sort of JavaScript agnostic. And so because of that, there are these edge cases that come up. And like, it's not that we are, you know, literally asking an AI to translate the TypeScript code into Rock, but... If we were, it would still have to worry about those and be like, oh, hang on, we're going from a 64-bit float to a 32-bit integer or a 64-bit integer. There's edge cases both ways. Oh, yeah. So it's interesting to think about if you could automatically translate your code base, how would you specify what you wanted done in those edge cases? Like, how would you, I mean, to some extent, you probably have to manually review them. You know, how would you even tell whether or not there are things that you need to worry about coming up? Like, in some cases, it could be like, well, numbers this big are never going to come up on our code base anyway, so who cares? But they might. Like, how do you even know? Yeah. And so there's this category of like analysis tools that I can imagine that today there's not really much demand for. But in a hypothetical world where you could do stuff like that, I could totally imagine there being demand for that. The way people think about AI stuff today, I actually think is like the things people talk about are the not interesting things. Like all this, like, oh, I'm just going to tell ChatGPT to make me something. I think the thing is, AI is really good at these sort of like potentially good at these weird edge cases like you described, right? Because most of the problem can be solved with like some kind of compiler, right? Like I, I've got this, I'm going to compile it to that. That's a solved problem. We don't need AI for that. It's cool if it can do it, but that's not actually what we're weak at. We're, we're good at that. What is challenging is, like you said, these little fuzzy areas where we're like, I don't really know how to solve that and I can't really code it heuristically. Like I maybe can come up with some rules, but I just can't. You know, that to me is in general sort of the AI opportunity spaces is these spaces where we're like, this just gets too fuzzy here. And, and again, I could be wrong. I don't know if this may actually work, right? But to me, that's where the interesting use cases for this stuff is, is in this, I just can't figure a way without me looking at the code to correctly transform it to this, right? Everything else I can write a compiler for, everything else can be automated. But right here, it's just too hairy. It needs a human. That might be the place where that's where you stick AI, right? And rather than it's running everything, which seems crazy to me for a lot of these problems, I mean, People are reinventing things we already knew how to solve. But they're like, I saw this thing where someone was like, oh, AI can take your Wendy's order. It's the end of the world. I'm like, we could automate taking your Wendy's order like 20 <laughs> years ago. Like, that's not really like, 
And also that's a speech recognition problem. It's not even a text problem. Like we have yes, the ability but, to, yeah. But could you get funding for those things? <laughs> that's okay. That's, yeah, that's, that's the real question. Get your code for AI winter, right? It's <laughs> but yeah, that, I mean, that is, um, that is the uh, truth about that, that whole thing, which is wild sort of AI hype. But yeah, exactly. That's the thing is that we have all these things, but the places where I think there's opportunity is these things where, if you think, how would you solve that in code? You get to the point where you're stumped and you go, I don't know. I, I could look at it and tell you, yeah. but I don't know how to solve that in code. I think that's actually where if people do incredible stuff with these tools, that's where the magic will happen. We'll see. Something I want to be careful about is when people are talking about like the current crop of AI, it's like really what they're talking about in the context of programming is GPT. Yeah. <laughs> because like, I mean, like, I mean, maybe somebody's using like some of these image generation tools in programming. I kind of doubt it. Uh, I mean, maybe to generate static assets, but probably not using that exact AI technology for actually generating code, as far as I know. And also all of the like non-large language model things that people have been applying to programming have not had like a big leap forward recently, as far as I'm aware. And also all the ones that are not, all the LLMs that are not GPT, especially like GPT-4 are like, from what I've seen, not doing nearly as good of a job at generating code. Having said all that, it does feel like there is a new categorization emerging in tools that didn't really exist before. And in my mind, the terms that I'm kind of thinking of these in is high reliability and low reliability tools. Hmm. And previously, we had a lot of high reliability tools. I'm not saying reliable because they're not, not 100% reliable. There's bugs in computer yeah, programming. Yeah. But a compiler is something I would consider a high reliability tool. Like if I give it the same inputs, I'm going to expect the same outputs. And unless there's like specific bugs which can get fixed and then, you know, theoretically that problem should not recur, you know, unless there's a regression which can happen, but you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, like it should do the same thing and I should understand, like if I give it these inputs, I know what outputs I'm expecting and it should reliably do that. However, there's categories of problems that those high reliability tools are just bad at solving. They're yeah. just not any good at them. And what's interesting is that large language models and, you know, specifically GPT and GPT-4 right now, they're quite good at solving those problems, but in a low reliability way. Yeah. So like, I mean, something I did earlier today was I was like, hey, chat GPT, I have some code. It's like a bash script. I want it to be in Node.js. Convert that for me. And so yeah. it did. And I took it, but I have to read it very carefully and make sure it's still doing the same thing. I can't just be like, you know, if I, if I take a compiler and I'm like, hey, Elm, compile me this JavaScript code. I, don't, I never look at that. It's like, yeah, that's your job you spit out JavaScript code and I trust that it works. In fact, it usually works better than if I hand wrote the JavaScript. <laughs> so it's in this totally different category where it's like the LLM or, or chat GPT is low reliability, but it's doing something that previously I would not have used a tool for. I would yeah. not have been like, hey, can you just transpile this bash to like idiomatic Node.js in part because like you said, there's fuzzy questions in there. Like, yeah. okay, you could choose to do it in this particular way where like literally like a bash, I'm running, you know, LN and it's like, oh, well, do you want to just have the Node.js code do exec sync on the LN program? It's like, no, I want you to call the link function to like link these two things. And so for things like that, if you tried to make a high reliability system that did that, you would need to write a ton of rules for it and be very, very specific at which point, I don't know, is it still actually saving you time? Um, but and I agree library. with that concern. I, I, do, I do feel like you see all these examples and they go, that's amazing, except to code review it. And more than you would yeah. a normal person because the errors right. it's going to make are subtler than an engineer would make. Like, you know where a human engineer will make mistakes. You're going to look for common errors. But in these things, they spit out stuff and you're like, okay, now I need to use all my expertise to verify that this was in fact brilliant. And most right. of the time it's not. Anyway, continue. Sorry. And I think an interesting question is that there seems to be an implicit assumption in a lot of people's AI predictions that they're like, oh, these systems are temporarily low reliability, but in the future, they'll just magically become high reliability. And you'll just be able to say, hey, ChatGPT, write me a program that just does everything, period. And it'll be like, oh, sure, here you go. This is going to take me a few minutes, but don't worry, I can do that. And I don't know how safe that assumption is, because in a lot of cases, I think part of the reason that they're low reliability is not due to defects in the system, but rather due to if the problem is underspecified, your two options are either give you a ton of prompts until you have exactly specified it, at which point, yeah, it's reliable, but it didn't save you much time anymore because you had to go through that entire process. Or it's just going to take shots in the dark and kind of make guesses, which will save you time, but make it low reliability. So like if you said, like, for example, you, you gave the, you know, I'm, I'm at Wendy's. I, I, let's say I wanted to make an AI that's like doing, doing an ordering system for Wendy's. Someone could say someday AI will let you say, hey, ChatGPT, write me software 
that takes your order at Wendy's. And it can say, okay, here it is. Now, with no further review, how good of a job do you think it's going to do if that was the only input that you gave it? Like, how good of a job can it do? You know, like, given that it has to make some assumptions, and those assumptions might be different than what you had in your mind. So I think in scenarios like that, it's really difficult to just, well, it's, <laughs> the problem is not that it's difficult. The problem is that it's easy to assume that you can take something that is currently low reliability and just assume that, yeah, hand wave away, it'll just get more reliable. But what's actually difficult, I think, is figuring out in which specific cases that's true, because it will be true in some cases, and in which specific cases it's like, actually, this is sort of innate to the problem, and you can't just engineer your way out of it. It's just that there's just either going to be the tool's not as useful as you want it to be and not that magical, or uh, you have to settle for some lower reliability. I think you're right about <laughs> all those things. And I actually agree with you. As someone who you know, knows quite a bit about how these are built, I actually am extremely skeptical of that ever being solved. The models are all the same as what we've been doing forever. It's taking this problem, it's mapping it in some latent space, and it's doing some linear stuff in latent space. And that can be really impressive. But these problems aren't solved by making that space better, in my, my belief. I don't see that being solvable. It's not doing something more clever. It's not really reasoning. Yeah. It just, it's really good at sounding like it's reasoning. But to your point, the one place I see, and actually this is like one of the things I'm, I, I'm thinking about with sort of data science workflows and, and potential work at Hex is like, so one thing I've noticed is we kind of have in data science, I would tell you what I'd call like a soft template, where there's kind of common patterns in how code flows. You don't mind tweaking it. You don't expect it to even be right, but it's tedious to write. But it's not the kind of thing an IDE can just spit out for you, right? So like in, right. You know, if you're writing Java, you have, you know, IntelliJ and it can do all this stuff for you. You don't change it because it's deterministic. And in data science workflows, there's a lot of things. If you look, if I showed you like 10,000 data science notebooks, you'd be like, wow, these all look so similar. And yet I can't like deterministically pump that out. So I think there's an opportunity there for, hey, I'm starting a new project. Can you just give me the template? Like, can you give me the stuff I'm going to need for this problem? And I don't need it to be perfect. I just need it to, because like, like to our earlier point, I'm going to be fastly iterating anyway, right? Right. But you know, when you think about like the AI doom future, that's an edge case, right? That's a small, that's an opportunity that will get better. I don't think we're going to be replaced by robots there, right? That's going to go make some people go, oh, work's easier. <laughs> this is better than what they had. You know, now I feel like Java engineers. Ideally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> However, the one thing I think from a programming perspective that I haven't heard much discussion about, which I think is so cool about what these models are doing and is worth thinking about is, and I mentioned this earlier, this idea of differentiable programming. And I don't know if you know a lot how these models are written. And I actually think the, the fusion models are a better example of this. But it's a very, so real quick, are you familiar with the idea of sort of differentiable programming or? No. Okay. So this is what's cool. You know, and, and there's a library in Jax that I was using a lot for stuff. Basically, you describe your problem in terms of the parameters that a, a program takes and the output you want. You can take the derivative of that. That's why it's called differentiable, because you can take the derivative of a program rather than a function, right? And then you just do gradient descent and you get the optimal weights for that. And that's a cool way to solve problems because like you just kind of have to know where the information flows. So like stable diffusion, for example, is really three big neural networks. There's one that does the variational autoencoding that takes the images and projects them into a latent space, like you know, the sort of image space you can imagine it. There's a text encoder, very much like GPT, it could be a transformer that takes the text you're describing. And then there's a piece that aligns those two. And then there's an a third model that tries to figure out, you add noise to it, there's a third model that figures out what that noise is and then tries to denoise it. And that's how you generate stuff. So you start with noise and text description and say, hey, denoise this. And it tries to make something and that's how it works. What's really cool though, if I, as I'm describing it to you, if you're thinking of it like an engineer, you're thinking of writing three models and then how am I gonna train them? No, they're all connected through one giant differentiable program. You just take the derivative of that and you run it on inputs and outputs that you want, and now the program behaves like you want it to. And that, to me, is wildly exciting. Like, the idea of, like, I just specify how my program behaves, and I tell it what I want to have happen, and it's a very complicated program, and now it's going to learn it. So when you think about how, from a programming perspective, stable diffusion is written, or, and transformers are very similar, it's actually just this a whole bunch of stacked little simple tools that... They're all connected. Like, for example, the position of words in a transformer used to be that you apply a sign function to it and it would say, okay, I'm going to find this position here and this position here. And that tells you relative to the statement where you are. They realized they could replace that with uh, let the network learn it. It's just there's another function you write saying, here's my 
I want to know where this is positioned. You figure it out and I'm going to run this. And that is a very different way of thinking about problems where you just describe your problem. To be fair, we're only solving this for these sort of specific cases. I've done actually a few trivial examples on my blog where I'll like have a problem where I know how to describe it mathematically. I just don't know how to solve it. And then if I write it in Python with Jax, I just take the derivative of it and say, solve it. <laughs> like you find the optimum. Here's the examples. Here's what it should do. You tell me what the answer is. But that's how these massive, you know, these engineering wise are incredibly complex programs. But the really magical part is they all are basically defined by a flow of information. And you define how the information flows to the system. And then you say, okay, here's what happened at the end. Here's what came in the beginning. You figure out how that information should flow. And then you get a diffusion model, or then you get GPT-4 or whatever. And when you think of that as a programming paradigm, you know, when you look at a book on neural networks, there's a lot of calculus and a lot of math, and that can be very discouraging. But you could take someone that isn't familiar with linear algebra, isn't familiar with that, and just say the gradient function is just, just like map or reduce or any of these other kind of things. Gradient gives you the derivative. The derivative allows us to do gradient descent to find optimal things. Don't worry about any of the details. Don't worry about how derivatives are calculated. Just know that we can figure out how this program changes with a change in inputs, and we're going to find the inputs that work best. And if you think of gradient as a primitive, then you have differentiable programming. In the same way, thinking about map and, and lambdas and all that gives you functional programming. It's the thing I'm very excited about, and I kind of hope we keep pushing that because it's such a cool idea. This is fine. Here's how information flows. Computer, you find the answer. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like, I mean, keep in mind, I'm a complete novice at all the things you just talked about. But it sounds like the gradient function is a little bit like a fold in the sense that you basically like you've got some initial set of inputs and then you're going to keep running this one same function over them over and over and over again. And it's just going to keep giving you an output, which then gets fed into the next round until at some point you stop. That's actually how gradient descent works. Yeah, that's sort of actually how the actual use of that. So the gradient, yeah. um, and, and, and I'm trying to, you know, sometimes I've spent too much time with data science people, so I have to like forget all the math. So gradient, uh, <laughs> or derivative in general, just tells you, for a mathematical function, it tells you how it changes with the change in the inputs. And so for a program, you could imagine, okay, like the gradient will tell you how this program is going to change the change in the inputs. And what you want to do is change the parameters of the program that are free parameters that the model can change to get the desired output, right? So you can say, I want this picture to be classified as that. And the derivative will tell you why it's wrong, essentially, or how it's so, uh, how it changes <laughs> and how you can be more right, which direction. I guess it tells you how do you change that program to make it more right. And then yeah. you keep doing that and then you get it right enough. And at the same time, when you think about AI taking over the world, that is also... The idea of incremental little changes to make a program better, that is how every neural network works, for better or for worse. It's cool you can do it for everything, but at the same time, you know, if you've ever had an idea that changed your view on the world, neural networks don't train that way. They assume that you can always move a little closer to the right space and you will get home and that will get your answer. And I think we all know personally that it's not always how knowledge works. It's not always sure. how information and problem solving works. But yeah. As a programming paradigm, I was working. I was working on this book. I ended up canceling it, but that was what I was hoping to get at: was sort of write this in a way for regular programmers to just teach them, just like you would fold and map, you know, as an idea. Teach them gradient as an idea, and then sort of show examples of how you can then use gradient optimization to do it. And the cool thing is, in modern day differential programming, you don't have to even know that. And in fact, it's like the Jax, you can just shove your program in an optimizer and it does all that. Even the stuff I just described, it does for you. So the idea of defining the flow of information through your system and what you expect the system to do and saying, now do it, that is how stable diffusion is trained. That's how you build that program, right? That's how GPT is built, right? And that's a very different way of thinking about programming. And that to me is what's very cool about what's happening in AI right now. Got it. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And I can see why that would be a very exciting thing, even if like the sort of the, I don't know, end user applications that have come out of it have not totally transformed everyday programming yet. But it'll be really cool to see how these things evolve you know, over the coming weeks, months, years. Yeah, yeah. And, and I would love to be wrong. You know, I, I really think these things aren't going to change the world as much as people think. Because like you said, I don't think this low reliability, high reliability problem is solved. I think in the cases where we can accept low reliability, they're going to do a lot of good. Another area where I think these things are going to be huge so people focus on the prompting, but one of the biggest challenges in data science is taking text and representing it as numbers. And there is a ton of ways to do that. But if you have a little bit of text, it's very hard to get numbers that represent it well. Mm. But with OpenAI, and I wrote an article on this, you can take the text, say, OpenAI, give me the numbers that represent this text, and it's going to perform awesome. 
which means that if you have a small classification task, you just want to run as a developer. If you're just thinking, oh, I just want to quick, I want to classify which of these bugs is this type or this type. I don't know enough about machine learning. I don't know how to build these. You don't have to think about that. You say, open AI, give me these, and you can plug it into whatever vanilla, very simple to use machine learning tool you want, like a simple logistic regression, simple classifier off the shelf. And most of the work is the calls to open API. <laughs> and that's yeah. an engineering task, not a data science task. So that's an area where I also see this stuff being surprisingly transformative because problems that before you would have had to get a team of data scientists and they may not have still been able to solve it because they didn't have enough data. Now you can say, okay, I want a bug ticket classifier. That's like a that's like a two point ticket now. <laughs> so wow, we covered a lot of ground. We uh, started off on on the house and, and AI. And, <laughs> yeah, it has been great. I learned a lot. Thanks for uh, taking the time to explain all that to me and chatting with me about Haskell and R and everything else. Oh, thank you for having me. Like I said, it's funny because I've done a lot of like stats podcasts and like even with this job interview, it's an engineering job primarily that I did. I've kind of forgot that like, you know, you're not speaking to people that do this stuff literally every day and are deep into <laughs> right. it. So it. But I actually like it because I like thinking about these problems. I, I like getting out of that headspace and sort of thinking about these problems as problems and relating it to programming languages. So, yeah, no, this, this has been a really great conversation. <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, I, I enjoyed it too. So thanks so much for having it. Yeah, thank you.